Okay, session four. Who are the people of the prince to come? Now, in the last session, we dealt with one of the most significant pillars of the Roman end time uh, paradigm, the Roman end time theory. And now we're going to deal with really probably the most significant pillar. We've removed one, and now we're going to remove the second. Whenever discussing the issue of the Islamic end time paradigm, inevitably, inevitably, almost in a very uh, reactionary, just, you know, off-the-cuff kind of way, you'll hear folks just say, no, no, there's no way that what you're saying could be true because Daniel 9.26, the people of the prince to come, those were Romans, the discussion is over. And just based on this one verse alone, many people are absolutely convinced that the Antichrist and his people will come from the, a revived Roman Empire, will come from Europe, or even, most specifically, Italy. And so the verse that we're looking at is Daniel 9.26, and it says this, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this is a verse that is found in the midst of Daniel 9 and this prophecy concerning, concerning 70 weeks. It's a very... Uh, involved prophecy. We're not going to get into it uh, in detail, but we do want to discuss this verse, Daniel 9.26, the people of the prince to come. Who are they? Because uh, this issue has really cemented the beliefs of many with regard to the origins of the Antichrist and this issue uh, or this debate between the Islamic and the European paradigm. So it's essential that we walk through uh, this verse from a historical, grammatical uh, perspective and interpret it uh, as faithfully as we can. So according to the traditional position, according to the traditional position, the verse should be understood as follows. The people of the coming prince, i.e. the Antichrist, that, that prince that is coming in the last days, they will destroy the city, that's Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the Jewish temple. And because in 70 A.D., under Titus, it was the Roman peoples that destroyed uh, the city and the sanctuary, it is thus argued that clearly the people of the Antichrist, the people of the prince to come, will thus be Italians or Europeans specifically. But uh, of Roman origin, most often European, in many cases Italian. The destruction of the city and the sanctuary, as I said, that is most often referred to is that which took place in 70 A.D. And, you know, you can go to the city of Rome and see that base relief of Titus carrying off the various artifacts from the Jewish temple. This is a well-known uh, episode in history. And so a majority of prophecy teachers and students have concluded that the Roman peoples of 70 A.D., can be identified, again, as the ancestors of the followers of the Antichrist. Because the soldiers were Roman citizens, most who look at this passage, again, in a perfunctory, very surface way, conclude very confidently that the primary followers of the Antichrist will be Europeans. So here's a quote from... Uh, a very well-known, very popular uh, prophecy teacher, and he articulates this traditional position. He says this, that the Antichrist will arise out of the heartland of the old Roman Empire and that he will be of Italian descent. Both Jerusalem and the Jewish temple were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. 
Therefore, according to Daniel, the Antichrist must be of Roman heritage. That is a just perfect articulation of the traditional position. And now I want to walk through the, as I said, the grammatical and historical realities to see if that uh, opinion, if that argument is valid. So here are the, the errors of, of this position. First of all, it assumes the following equations. The first false equation is that Roman citizens equal Italians. And that in order to be uh, a Roman citizen, one must have been an Italian. And secondly, it, it falsely assumes the, the next equation, which is that Roman citizens were Europeans. Is that, is that Roman citizens equal Europeans. The fact of the matter is that these are both logical fallacies as well as historically uh, historical inaccuracies. The Roman Empire was far more than just Europe. As we know, it included northern Africa as well as good sections of the Middle East. Beyond that, it also uh, has a faulty interpretation with regard to the grammar of the passage, with regard to the very specific wording of the prophecy. The traditional position completely ignores the proper wording and the grammar of the passage. Now we're going to unpack that a bit. The wording of the prophecy is concerning the people. It's concerning the people, not the kingdom or the empire that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. So, in the Hebrew, it is the Am Nagid. Nagid is the prince. Am is the people. And so the phrase is the people of the prince to come. It is not the kingdom of the prince, which would be Mamlaka Nagid. It is not the nation of the prince, which would be uh, Goyim Sabib, or the Goy, uh, Goy Nagid, I'm sorry. It is not the kingdom, it is not the nation of the prince to come. Specifically, the wording in the passage is the people of the prince to come. The Strong's lexicon lists the meaning of Am as nation, people, or kindred. I was just uh, looking in a Bible dictionary on the, on the plane today, and it specifically said tribes, that it would be tribes of the Jewish nation. Wilhelm Jesenius, the nearly revered Hebrew scholar in his lexicon, he lists the primary meaning of the word as single races or tribes, a race or a family, the kindred, the relatives. You see, it's very much an ethnic identity. Hebrew scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum rightfully states and agrees with this. He says, we are dealing here with a bloodline and not a country, end quote. The historical reality, the very simple historical reality is that the Roman Empire, not unlike the United States today, was composed of numerous people groups. So let's just say that... uh, this evening, I, I leave filming this uh, session, and I get mugged. Let's say I get mugged by four or five uh, guys, and the police ask me, they say, who mugged you? And I say, well, officer, they were Americans. They were clearly all Americans. What have I just told the uh, police officer? I haven't told him anything, because the fact of the matter is the mere designation of American means nothing with regard to ethnicity. You could have... Uh, Caucasian Americans, you could have Korean Americans, you could have African Americans, you could have Latino Americans, you could have any number of uh, something hyphenated Americans. And in the United States is a melting pot. Likewise, in almost nearly identical fashion, the Roman Empire 
was a melting pot that was comprised of numerous various ethnic peoples. Uh, so an example highlighting the distinction between the Mamlaka and the Am, the difference between the ethnicity and the kingdom is seen in Acts 22, verses 25 through 29. It says, Then the commander came and said to Paul, he said, Tell me, are you a Roman? A Roman would have been the Mamlaka, again, the citizenship of the kingdom, the empire that he was from. Paul says, Yes, I'm a Roman. The commander, an, the commander answered and said, With a large sum, I obtained the citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. And then later Paul says, I am a man, uh, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. So Paul, with regard to who he was ethnically, with regard to his tribe, his am, his am, he was a Jew. With regard to his kingdom, his mamlaka, he was a Roman. So we need to recognize the fact that the traditional position ignores the actual wording of the text. It is not speaking of the kingdom, rather the ethnicity. And so just some of the many ethnic groups that were uh, comprised the Roman Empire. You had uh, Celts, you had Italians, you had Germanic peoples, you had Berbers, you had Africans, you had Jews, Egyptians, Greek, Illyrians, Iberians, Scythians, Samaritans, Syrians, Arabs, you had Turkic peoples, you had Parthians, you had any number of different ethnic peoples that comprised the Roman Empire, and yet they were all Romans. They were Romans, but with regard to their Am, there were many. With regard to their Mamlaka, they were one. So here's the question, who were the people, who were the Am, who destroyed the city and the temple in 70 AD? History tells us that they were the soldiers from the Eastern Legions, the Eastern uh, the military, the Roman military that was stationed in the east, that were in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. They were primarily provincials. These were the Syrian, the Arab, the Egyptian, and the various eastern peoples that composed the Roman armies under Titus. Now we're going to look at some of the historical evidences. This is a quote from a scholar of Roman history. His name is Lawrence J.F. Kepi. He's the author of Legions and Veterans, Roman Army Papers. And he says this, after 68 AD, now again, the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 AD. So this is, he's speaking of after this, this time, 60 AD, the legions consisted almost exclusively of provincials. Now he's not speaking merely of the eastern uh, legions, but literally the entirety of the Roman Empire. The legions uh, throughout the Roman Empire by 68 AD consisted, according to Lawrence J.F. Kepi, almost exclusively of provincials. Who were the provincials? They were those that lived in the provinces on the eastern front. This is Sarah Elise Fang. She's a PhD. She's also a scholar of Roman history. In her book, uh, Roman Military Service, Ideologies of Discipline in the Late Republic and Early Principate, she said this, that Italians were increasingly replaced in the legions during this period by provincials, that the fact that Italians were no longer used and were instead replaced by the provincials is itself no longer a novelty among scholars. In the east, that is Asia Minor, Syria and Egypt, it seems clear, it seems clear that local recruitment was well underway under Augustus. This is all the way back in he died in uh, 14 A.D. 
So we're going back now 56 years prior. 56 years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, local recruitment, in other words, drawing recruits from the regions where the legions were stationed, was well underway 56 years before the temple was destroyed. So that by his death, again, A.D. 14, only a very small number of legionaries derived from Italy or indeed any of the western provinces. Okay, so 56 years before the temple was destroyed, Sarah Elise Fang, scholar of Roman history, says only a very small number came from Italy or any of the Roman provinces. In other words, from Europe. Hardly any came from Europe. When the Eastern legions required supplementation, it was to Cappadocia in Galatia that Rome looked for recruits. In other words, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This was doubtless standard procedure. The legions of the East consisted largely of Orientals, end quote. And by Orientals, she's referring, of course, to Easterners, Middle Easterners. Now, this is from the ancient historian Tacitus in his, in his The Histories, And he says this, early in the year, Titus Caesar, this was the son of Domitian, he found in Judea, it's speaking of his his drawing together the Roman legions, so he found in Judea three legions, the 5th, the 10th, and the 15th. To these he added the 12th from Syria, and some men belonging to the 18th and the 3rd who he withdrew from Alexandria, that's Egypt. This force was accompanied by a strong contingent of Arabs. And then it says this, who hated the Jews with the usual hatred of neighbors, end quote. So here's an ancient historian. We've looked at some modern historians. Here's Tacitus, ancient historian. And he makes it clear that the legions were drawn from Syria and Egypt, as well as accompanied by auxiliaries, by volunteers that were Arabs, specifically that hated the Jews. So the Roman legions that destroyed Jerusalem, you had Legion 5, Macedonia, Legion 10, Fratensis, Legion 15, Apollinari, Legion 12, uh, Fulminata, Legion 18, which I'm not sure what the name of that was, and Legion 3, Gallica. Every one of these uh, legions was stationed, was garrisoned in the Middle East with the uh, only possible exception of being Macedonia, Legion 5, Macedonia, which in all of the history that I looked up says that they were stationed either in Judea or Moesia, which is modern-day Serbia. Uh, the, the evidence leads towards Judea, but I want to be fair to those that would challenge the thesis that I'm presenting. Now we're looking at uh, Josephus, again, another ancient uh, historian in his book, The Wars of the Jews. And he says this, Under Nero... Oh, I'm sorry, this is under Nero. This is several years before 70 AD. This is about AD 62. Josephus comments on the Syrian dominance of the Roman garrisons in Judea. There was a squabble, a dispute that broke out between the Jews and the Syrians and the the Romans. And so then Josephus makes this comment. He says, the greatest part of the Roman garrison was raised out of Syria. And being thus related to the Syrian part, they were ready to assist it. In other words, when the dispute broke out between the Syrians and the Jews, the Roman army took the side of the Syrians because they were Syrians. Again, Josephus, in the complete works of Josephus, the Wars of the Jews, or the history of the destruction of Jerusalem, he says this, So Vespasian 
sent his son Titus, who came by land into Syria. So he, he comes into Syria where he gathered together the Roman forces with a considerable number of auxiliaries, that's volunteers, from the kings in that neighborhood. In other words, auxiliaries from the kings in the neighborhood of Syria. So essentially what was happening was the Roman armies were making their way, they were gathering on their way to Jerusalem. They were Middle Eastern peoples that hated the Jews, and there were all sorts of volunteers that were jumping on board saying, there's a, there's a, there's a Jew-killing party coming, you know, let's, let's get on board. Again, Josephus says, Malchus, also the king of Arabia, sent a thousand horsemen besides five thousand footmen. So now a Roman uh, legion was five thousand men. In those days, history tells us a Roman legion was comprised of five thousand men. Here you have one king of Arabia who sent six thousand men. He sent over a legion of volunteers, just this one particular king. Again, Josephus, he makes reference to this incredibly gruesome uh, episode. And speaking of, um, you had the siege of Jerusalem. And what happened is many of the Jews, they were trying to escape. They were trying to escape the city. And when they did that, they would actually swallow a few pieces of uh, silver and, or gold. And they would come out and, and um, surrender. And so what happened is, is this gruesome account that Josephus records, and he says, the multitude of the Arabians with the Syrians cut up those that came out as supplicants and searched their bellies. So they were actually killing them and cutting open their stomachs, trying to find a few pieces of silver. Nor does it seem to me that any misery befell the Jews that was more terrible than this, since in one night's time about 2,000 of these deserters were thus dissected. The point being, there was no love whatsoever between the Arabs and the Syrians and the Jewish people. They hated the Jewish people. They were willing to murder, murder families that came out trying to escape surrender for a few pieces of silver or gold. 2,000 in one night. And then Nigel Pollard, he's a Ph.D. professor of Roman history at Oxford University, actually uh, exchanged some emails with him bouncing uh, my thesis off of him, and he, he very much validated uh, what I'm presenting. He says this, Other evidence that the Syrian legions of the Flavian period were characteristically Syrian in some way comes from Tacitus's reference to Legion Three Gallica, again, one of the legions that participated, saluting the rising sun according to the custom of Syria. So again, these were uh, astral uh, sun god worshippers and these Roman soldiers got up and they worshipped the sun in the morning after the custom of Syria. That was in A.D. Uh, 69. So now let's crunch the numbers. We've looked at what the the modern day scholars, uh, as well as the the ancient scholars, have said. And let's begin to try to crunch the numbers. So now here's another quote from Josephus. He said this. The whole army, this is speaking of the entire invasion of Jerusalem, the whole army, including the auxiliaries sent by the kings, as well as horsemen and footmen, when all were united together, amounted to 60,000. So the entire army was 60,000 men. This is according to Josephus. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, a legion contained roughly 5,000 soldiers. 
So there were roughly four full legions, as we've seen earlier in Tacitus, and two partial legions were involved in the attack. So what this would mean is that there were approximately 25,000 men that were full-time soldiers, full-time legionaries, with the remaining 35,000 men that were volunteers or auxiliaries. So you had more auxiliaries that were joining the army voluntarily that were not actual Roman soldiers than Roman soldiers. Again, you had roughly 25,000 men that were full-time legionaries. The rest were volunteers from the neighborhood. Josephus confirms this when he says that the auxiliaries were sent by the kings from the neighborhood of Syria, Asia Minor, and Arabia. Nigel Pollard, again, scholar of Roman history, states that there were at the most, at the most, one of five Western soldiers in any Roman legion. So again, I'm trying to be very generous to uh, those that are critical of this thesis. I'm trying to be as generous as possible. Let's say that at the most there were one in five. The fact of the matter is, is that the, con- the testimony of these various modern-day scholars is that the number was probably far less, particularly in the East. In the East, the number was likely far less than one out of five. But if, in fact, we go with that number, that would mean that of the roughly 25,000 legionaries, no more, no more than 4,000 were from Western provinces. In other words, Europe. No more than 4,000 men were from Europe. So what that would mean is this. Of the roughly 60,000 men that destroyed the city and the sanctuary, according to Daniel 9.26, of those 60,000 men, no more, at the maximum, were 4,000 were European. That meant 56,000 were Eastern peoples. That's a margin of 1 to 15. 1 European to 15 Middle Easterners at the very most. The number was likely much higher, perhaps as many as 1 in 30. Again, 1 in 15 is the maximum number. It was probably more like 1 in 30. In conclusion, both ancient and modern scholarship thoroughly testify to the fact that the overwhelming number of men in the armies that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, they were Syrians, they were Arabs, they were Egyptians, they were the Eastern peoples. In terms of who they were, in terms of the Am, in terms of their ethnicity, these were Eastern peoples. The evidence is overwhelming. The fact is beyond dispute. What is, what is the point here? Is that when we do a survey in previous sessions and we look at the various passages that speak of the Messiah returning, he is engaged in battle with Middle Eastern nations, with Islamic nations. Here again, it's pointing us to the same thing. All of the prophets are telling the same story. They're all using different stories. They're coming at it from different angles. They're telling the story from different perspectives. Some are using a wide-angle lens. Some are using a very narrow lens. They are all pointing to the same reality. The Bible is not contradicting itself. The Bible is pointing to the same reality at the end of the age. It is the Middle Eastern peoples that Daniel 9.26 is pointing us to. However, old ideas die hard. And I have found since uh, setting this information forward, uh, a lot of critics from the traditional position have very much challenged this. And here's an example uh, of, of one such critic. This is uh, Dr. David Reagan. Um, he, he was critiquing a book that I had written with uh, Walid Shobat. Walid is a, a former 
Palestinian uh, inoperative for the PLO. And this is what uh, Dr. Reagan uh, said. He said, a good example of Shobat's torturous logic can be found in his attempt to explain away the meaning of Daniel 9.26. The plain sense meaning of this passage is that the Antichrist will come from the people who will destroy the temple. Shobat and Richardson argue that the Roman legions that carried out the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD were composed primarily of Arabs. They therefore conclude that the Antichrist will arise from the Syrians or Turks and will be a Muslim. This is really grasping at straws in the wind. And then he says this very emphatically. It doesn't matter whether or not the legions were composed of Australian aborigines It was the Roman government that decided to destroy Jerusalem. It was the Roman government that gave the orders. It was the Roman generals who carried out the destruction. And it is from the Roman people that the Antichrist will arise. Now, I got this article sent to me one day in my email. And, uh, you know, I wrote back to Dr. Reagan and I said, you know, Dr. Reagan, please do not publish this. Uh, you have some very significant historical and grammatical facts wrong. And uh, unfortunately, it went forth in his Lamplighter magazine, and it's, it's really been passed around uh, quite a bit on the Internet and so forth. What is the problem with uh, this statement that, that he made? It doesn't matter whether the legions were composed of Australian aborigines. It was the Roman government that carried these things out. What's wrong with that? You know, we've already looked at the fact that history is, is clear that, in fact, it was the, the Middle Eastern peoples that comprised the Roman legions. But he says, you know, it doesn't even matter because it was the Romans that gave the orders. What's wrong with that? Again, here he is ignoring the grammar of the text. He's, he's ignoring the wording of the passage because it does matter who the people were because that is what the verse is pointing us to. It is pointing us to the Am, not the Mamlaka, but to the Am. But just for the sake of argument, let's just look at history to see if in fact it was the Roman generals that gave the orders. Let's see if in fact if it was the Roman government that carried these things out. And what we find is that history tells us it was just the opposite. This is from Josephus, the War of the Jews. This is speaking of the day when the temple actually was on fire. And here's what he says. And now a certain person came running to Titus and told him of the fire. Whereupon Titus rose up in great haste. As he was, he ran to the holy house in order to have a stop put to the fire. After him followed all of his commanders, and after them followed the several legions in great astonishment. So there was a great clamor and tumult raised, as was natural, upon the disorderly motion of so great an army. Then did Caesar, Titus, by calling aloud to the soldiers that were fighting with a loud voice and by giving them a signal with his right hand, order them to quench the fire." So when Titus heard about the fire, he rose up to try to put it out with his general. See, what, what history tells us and what Josephus tells us is that the, the, it caught on fire as a result of a conflict with a certain group of the Roman soldiers with the Jews. And it caught on fire partially by accident. And then Titus tried to put it out. You see, history tells us, and Josephus, the same thing, 
that, the, that they wanted the Jewish temple to remain because it was a testimony to the greatness of the Roman Empire. It was a testimony to the peoples that the Romans could conquer and as well to their tolerance. And then continuing on, Josephus tells this. He says, Titus, supposing what the fact was that the house itself might yet be saved, he wanted to save the house. He came in haste and he endeavored to persuade the soldiers to quench the fire. Follow this. This is essential. Yet were the regards these soldiers had, yet were the regards they had for Caesar and their dread of him who forbade them, not as hard as their passion and their hatred of the Jews and a certain vehement inclination to fight them too hard for them also. And thus was the holy house burnt down without Caesar's approbation. The point there is that Caesar is commanding them, put the fire out. And Josephus says, they had something which possessed them, which was far more powerful than their desire or their fear of their commander. And it was hatred, specifically hatred of the Jews. The Arab and the Syrian soldiers that were present that day lit the fire. They burnt the temple down Titus himself tried to put it out. So when we go back to that comment that it doesn't matter if it was Australian Aborigines because it was the Roman generals that gave the orders, historically that is completely inaccurate. It is also completely inaccurate with regard to the grammar. From a grammatical historical interpretation of the text, it is clear that the peoples that destroyed the city in Jerusalem in 70 AD were the Arabs, the Syrians, and the Eastern peoples. The verse is pointing us to the Middle Eastern peoples today. If we desire to submit to the passage, then we must draw out its true meaning. That is exegesis. That is to look at the meaning of the passage and draw out what it is telling us. We must submit to its proper interpretations. We cannot force or manipulate the passage to conform to our various eschatological positions. When we try to manipulate the passage to conform to our position, that's eisegesis. That's trying to read into the passage something that's not there. The passage is simply one more retelling, one more reiteration of that which all the prophets have spoken. They are telling the same story. They are pointing us to the Middle Eastern peoples. This is an essential paradigm that we need to get down if we want to understand what the Lord is doing in the earth today, if we want to understand what is on the horizon, where it is moving, we need to understand what the Lord is pointing us to in Daniel 9.26. So we've, we've completed Daniel 2 as well as Daniel 9.26. These are the two most significant pillars that support the European end-time paradigm and as we can see, neither actually supports it. Rather, they point in completely the, op the exact opposite uh, direction. And now having looked at these two key passages in Daniel, in the next session we're actually going to continue on in Daniel. But before we do that, I want to turn to Daniel chapter 12 and draw out a, a very important point. At the beginning of the last session, I mentioned the fact that the book of Daniel is very uh, anti-Christic in its emphasis. It, it discusses the geography of the Antichrist. It discusses the ethnicity, as we just looked at, of the people of the Antichrist. It discusses the theology of the Antichrist. And we're going to look at that as we move on. It discusses the nature of the persecution of the Antichrist against God's people. It is a very, uh, you know, throughout the entire book of Daniel, it is a consistent theme. 
all of the various characteristics and the nature of the Antichrist kingdom. And then when we get to Daniel chapter 12, the very end of the book, there's this incredibly important passage that we need to look at. And so Daniel has had all of these these revelations. He's had an angels have appeared to him and revealed all sorts of things and pictures and visions to him. But then this happens, and this would have been very difficult, uh, I can imagine. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, this is the angel speaking to Daniel, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of great distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, so the angel is saying your people, the Jewish people, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued. At the day of the Lord, everyone who is found written in the book of life will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So in terms of timing, the context is clearly speaking of the day of resurrection, when those that are in the dust of the earth arise uh, unto everlasting life. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. So the angel says to Daniel, Daniel, this book is to be sealed specifically until the end time, until that time, that time period leading up to the resurrection of the dead, the end times. And he says, seal it up. And this is where I I have sympathy for Daniel. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing and Uh, Moving on, Daniel says, I heard, but I I didn't understand. You know, he was upset. He's like, wait a minute. You just revealed all these things. You need to explain it, please. Verse 8, Daniel says, as for me, I heard, but I could not understand. Or I I hear, I didn't want to understand what he was saying. I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? In other words, please explain it to me. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. I very much strive to always adhere to traditional interpretations. And we should all strive to adhere to traditional interpretations. And the reason that we should is because while the Holy Spirit may speak to us and while we may have our own studies and, and receive revelation from the Lord, the Lord also speaks to his people corporately. And the collective wisdom of the church down through history says something, then we need to be very humble if we're to challenge tradition. And so it is always with great uh, pain and heart searching and making sure that I'm not doing it in a wrong spirit whenever I... Uh, alter a position which is traditional and certainly the position the idea the notion that the entire book of daniel is largely speaking of a revived roman empire that's the traditional position and down through history that has been the predominant position of the church but what's so interesting is that you get to the end of the book and the angel says daniel this book is to be sealed until the end times until the end times this book will be sealed and so I look at this and I say, okay, so if 
the majority position from the very beginning has been that the book is speaking of the Roman Empire. If that is right, then these verses about sealing the book don't mean anything. On the other hand, if this book has in fact been sealed, then it's one instance, it's one very rare instance where the Bible is actually calling on us to take a contrarian interpretation, to say that the majority position is in all likelihood wrong because otherwise the book is not sealed. But if in fact the position that uh, I've articulated in these past two sessions with regard to Daniel 2 and Daniel 9.26, if in fact the things that we've discussed and laid out is accurate, if these passages are pointing us to the Middle East rather than a Roman Empire, if they're pointing us to an Islamic Empire, then it also stands to reason that we are, in fact, entering into the end times and that we are drawing close to the time when those that sleep in the dust of the earth will arise to everlasting life. That's a huge statement, and I don't know how else to get around it. I've looked at this thing from ten angles. Either one, these verses mean nothing, or the traditional position, the traditional European, Roman-centric position is simply not true. And in fact, if the things that we laid out are accurate, then yes, we are entering into the last days. Amen.